Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 13. And Dante says, I was intent on listening to them. When this was what my master said, if you insist on looking more, I'll quarrel with you. Immediately, Dante is shamed. It's a very mild rebuke. It's actually a, a, a hint that he's going to rebuke him. It's not hardly even a rebuke. Very mild rebuke. But Dante's sensibility has been so awakened, he instantly is shamed. And Virgil can tell that he's shamed. And Virgil instantly reassures him. He says, line 142, Less shame would wash away a greater fault than was your fault, my master said to me. Therefore, release yourself from all remorse and see that I am always at your side. Should it so happen once again that fortune brings you where men would quarrel in this fashion, to want to hear such bickering is base or to enjoy this kind of melodrama is beneath you. Now, there are two things, or, or maybe more, considerably more than two things going on here, but two important things going on here. Dante, Virgil, the poem, is, is pointing out how, how incredibly fascinating these kinds of meaningless... Uh, contest between two lost souls can be. And we can just tune into it. You see, we tune into it and get locked into it and think this is, it's so interesting. Uh, both of them having lost touch with something, just going back and forth and back and forth. It's like the I, I, maybe I both date myself and say something about my re regional origins. When I was a child, I used to have re local television used to have these wrestling matches on it where you could tell as soon as you saw these guys who's going to win, who's going to be the bad guy. But the people gathered around, you know, and cheered them on. It's like an intellectual thing like that. It has a... Just to get locked into it. And Virgil says... I think the important thing that Virgil says is that, Dante, is what happens when there is no community. And if you're starved enough for community, you may spend your life tuning into that. But that's not it. And then he says, Let's you and I go over here and I'll show you what community is really like. You want to watch a real argument? Let's you and I have one. You want to see a real, honest communication? I'm going to have one with you. Stop it. And Dante feels shame. You see, this is a communication. This is really an honest communication between Virgil and Dante. So we have this a matched set. We have... Master Adam and Sinon going back and forth and back and forth and for all eternity, really. 
It's only that they just, see, Dante and Virgil just walk away from it. But to this day, they're still doing it. Virgil makes his comment to Dante. Dante immediately sees the problem, is contrite. Virgil immediately reassures him he's going to always be with him, and the whole thing's over. That's, called, that's communication. That's honesty. One goes on for all eternity, the bickering. And the other is honest and confronts the issue, and uh, they go on. If we were to watch Master Adam and Sinon going at it, we might say, oh, this is a horrible thing. We must not quarrel like this. We must be nicer. Let's be... Uh, one, one might make this conclusion, you know, you, one might decide to be a namby-pamby. One might say, hey, well, let's just be nice. Well, that's not the nature of communication. I mean, communication is to, com to communicate something. And so what we get is not two people holding hands and skipping down the path. We get two people actually confronting each other to a point and resolving it. And what Virgil does is he points out the problem, instructs Dante about it, reasserts his commitment to Dante. I think that's the key to this thing. Less shame would wash away a greater guilt. Don't worry. He says, forget it. You got it. You got the message. Forget it. And then he says, I am always at your side. Commitment. I mean, this is, you know, all parents ought to come and read this, read these two uh, things, you know. And the, very, and the, and the first uh, two tercets of Canto 31, Dante says, The very tongue that first had wounded me, sending the color up in both my cheeks, was then to cure me with its medicine as did Achilles and his father's lance, even as I have heard, when it dispensed a sad stroke first and then a healing one. And this has to do with uh, Peleus, the father of Achilles, uh, had a lance which was able to uh, cure whatever wound it inflicted. And so Dante picks up on that image. And uh, what he's talking about here is honest communication. We live in a we live in a world where we have one of our one of our uh, sacrosanct notions is democracy, uh, and we have sort of let that idea run amok. Which is, in democracy, everybody is entitled to his or her own opinion, but then we slip from that into thinking that one opinion is as good as the next. It's just not so. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but that doesn't mean they're all equal. Uh, so what you get with Master Adam and Sinon is a, a subtle kind of uh, one-upsmanship, trying to get just a leg up on the next one because there is no s legitimate sense of a hierarchy there. And Dante and Virgil is quite clear. Dante knows. Virgil knows more than he does. He, has, he doesn't bicker with that. Clearly, whatever Virgil says, he, he takes it to heart. And so there's this, and this is important in Dante's understanding of the cosmos. There's a legitimate hierarchical structure in the cosmos. And any kind of, uh, any democracy that exists has to exist in terms of that. This is, as Dante will say later, a pendant universe. It is a, 
so that we are all dependent on orders of importance in our life. And Dante doesn't quibble at all. Virgil simply tells him what it is, and he responds to it. In Canto 31, uh, Dante, I think, uh, lets slacks off a little bit and has a, l a little bit of fun. I mean, not, I shouldn't say fun, but it's not. We're it's it's a little bit of a relief before we get into what are the the cantos 33 and 34, where the really 32, 33, and 34, where really the grave matter is dealt with. So there's a little bit of relaxation here, and what we get are these. Uh, giants, they are spiritual dinosaurs. And once again, the question continues to be a question of language. The question of language will, will hang on here for a little bit. Uh, as will the question of thirst and hunger, by the way, or uh, thirst and then hunger will come into it. They hear a bugle blast. And Dante uh, provides a simile, which is that it was like Roland's horn. Roland is the Christian hero, and the simile is out of place, but it, it, it points out the issue here for these giants, which is that they are spiritual and psychological Neanderthals uh, passing themselves off as courageous heroes. Um, again, we've seen some headlines along those lines. Spiritual and psychological Neanderthals passing themselves off as courageous heroes. The bugle is the call to arms. Uh, it's appropriate place as Dante would have it, would be when it is appropriate to call to arms. But these are primitives who are sounding the bugle blast out of some, out of some uh, in, innate, impulsive need for belligerence. So they simply are, they, it is a sounding of the call for arms. Now, we've heard some of that in our time. Uh, sounding the call to arm or to rearm. Uh, and what Dante is picturing is that this he is, he is, in a sense, looking at the archetype beneath this impulse in these creatures. And he likens, he sees them through this, it's half day and half night or neither one, and he can't see very well, and they're at some distance, and they look like to him, he says, it, it seemed to me, excuse me, it seemed to make out many, I seemed to make out many high towers. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to be indiscreet in my, in the interpretation I'd like to suggest. Uh, this is not really interpretation, it's just a uh, midrash on this canto, but, uh, <laughs> It's going to be a Dantean indiscretion in any case. And that is, uh, what does Dante mean by high, high towers? What does that conjure up in Dante's mind so that we can find a contemporary par parallel? 
the high towers were the fortresses that dotted the Italian landscape. These were military fortresses of the city-states and of the petty nobles that were all over the place. They gathered up enough uh, resources uh, to, to uh, solidify a, a place of power and build a fortress, and each fortress had a tower. And uh, you see, Italy was not really a nation yet. It was, it was waiting on the great national poem, and Dante hadn't written it yet. <laughs> so the great plague of Italy was that it was subdivided into these little fiefdoms, all, each of which had its military fortress, not totally unlike the planet Earth today, so that there is a parallel. So when Dante says he saw a tower, it, it's not the kind of towers that we see when we go on a tour of Europe and they look quaint and uh, they're nice to visit and climb in. What he, when he sees towers, he sees the, uh, the, uh, the military assertion of these little petty kingdoms. And if you think I'm just making that up, he says on line 50, 49, when he uh, uh, explores it a little further, he says, surely when she gave up the art of making such creatures the giants, nature acted well indeed, depriving Mars of instruments like these. Mars is the god of war. And these are instruments of war he's talking about. And the irony, well, let's, I'll complete that passage. Surely when she gave up the art of making such creatures, nature acted well indeed, depriving Mars of instruments like these. And if she still produces elephants and whales, Whoever, we've got a book on whales to read later. Whoever sees with subtlety holds her for this to be more just and prudent. For where the mind's acutest reasoning is joined to evil will and evil power, there human beings can't defend themselves. I think it's quite clear that what Dante is saying, there's irony in this. Nature long since has uncoupled this disastrous uh, combination, namely of human ingenuity, mental ingenuity, and awesome evil will and evil power. And he's saying nature did that. That was a good thing nature did that because if you ever get those two things together, uh, it will destroy everything. Hmm? What, else is new? what else is new? Yeah. If you ever get those two things together, human ingenuity and awesome to the point of being evil, power and will, then you create an instrument of Mars that is utterly destructive. So, if you're a 20th century Dante, when you look up to see those towers, what do you see? There they are, glistening in the sunshine. Ten, ten warheads apiece. Those are the towers. Because what Dante is saying, ironically, is that we, even in his time, is that we human beings, by building these fortress towers, have, have begun to do what nature 
undid. Namely, we have begun to recombine these dangerous, this dangerous combination of human ingenuity and will and power. So, when, on line 31, when Virgil says to Dante, I'd have you know they are not towers, but giants. What would the 20th century version be? It seems to me it might be, I'd have you know they are not weapons, but monstrosities. You see, towers, for Dante, was a category albeit uh, uh, offensive, it was a category that had become a uh, understandable category. It was, a, it was something people knew about, towers. In our time, weapons are that way. We know about weapons. Unfortunately, we know all too much about them. And some people know way too much about them. And it's a word we know about. We think about it. You use them in conflict. You use them in war. Somebody wins, somebody loses. That's a, and then we need a Virgil to come along and say, those are not weapons. They are monsters. If they're, they have only one function, and that is to destroy everything. And to talk about them as though they're weapons is to miss the awesome dilemma that you're now facing. And if you think that's far-fetched, get the, get the somber tones with, with which Dante comes to grips with this. He says, So I pierced through the dense and darkened fog as I drew always nearer to the shore. My error fled from me. My terror grew. seems to me that's a, some experience like that is awaiting us in the 20th century. The sudden realization that these things which he had labeled a conventional label and was therefore not terribly disturbed by them, he suddenly realizes that that label is inappropriate, that he is looking at something that is massively destructive. And he says, my error fled from me and my terror grew. And Nimrod, who's one of them, Nimrod is, is the, uh, well, Nimrod's associated with the Tower of Babel and by legend was, this, was the, its builder. Nimrod speaks, line 67, but nobody knows what he says because it's gibberish. You see, Nimrod has to... Uh, has to live eternally in the world he created, namely a world of Babel. So he tries to use language, but it just comes out to be newspeak or something. It just comes out to be garbage. It comes out to be deception, self-deception and deception of others. And so when he tries to speak, Virgil says to him, top of page 287, Oh, stupid soul, keep to your horn and use that as an outlet when rage and other passion touches you. Look at your neck and you will find the strap that holds it fast and see, bewildered spirit, how it lies straight across your massive chest. The, the funny part of this is that Nimrod is so stupid that he doesn't, can't even find the horn again. That's why he talked. He, could, he 
he's, he's fumbling around his massive chest trying to find that horn so he could blow it again. And Virgil tries to t tell him where it is. It's hanging around his neck, but he can't find it. And then Virgil says to Don Dante, This is Nimrod, through whose wicked thought one single language cannot serve the world. Leave him alone. Let's not waste time and talk, for every language is to him the same. So you get a picture of Nimrod as another personification of these giants. The thrust of the Tower of Babel was uh, to assert something into the heavens, to, uh, to extend that quest for power and dominance into the heavens. And the consequence of doing that was that they destroyed language. So that in order to have more weapons, in order to have no weapons, we have to have more weapons. It was that kind of destruction of meaning. Well, we get a look at the other uh, giants briefly. Um, and then there are two little touches that I just want to mention before we leave this canto. Dante calls these giants um, sons of the earth. And then we have Antaeus, who is, or Antaeus, who is the giant who has enormous power as long as his feet are on the ground. Uh, and Hercules finally defeated Antaeus by lifting him off the ground and draining him of that power. Now, clearly what Dante is talking about is uh, there, there, there might be positive implications to having one's feet on the ground and grounded and all of that, but Dante is talking about something else, something that feeds this kind of monstrous, primitive energy. And it seems to me that we might get some sense of it by thinking of a of some primitive, magically, in a way, or magical identification with one's turf. And the enormous amount of power and conviction that can be derived from that uh, unconscious association with one's turf, unquestioned uh, 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 loyalty to one's turf. Uh, and I think Dante is alluding to the fact that it is, that it is primitive. Now, he is, in the next canto, we're going to see people punished for uh, being, uh, for being uh, traitors to their people. Uh, so it's not a simple idea. Uh, but I was struck not too long ago, I was reading um, an article by a, a modern historian who happens also to, also to be a, a, a Christian theologian of sort. Before. He said, I had to ask my students in a, in a class he was teaching, he said, I had, had to ask my students in the 50s, uh, I said, you must ask yourself this question. Am I an American who just happens to be Christian or am I a Christian who just happens to be American? And he so, said it was very healthy to ask this of students because most of them thought of themselves as Americans who happened to be Christians. And he says it spoke to where they were grounded. Uh, and it seems to me appropriate here to, in the context of these other interpretations of this canto to see these giants as being uh, sons of the earth in that way. 
identified with their own turf and deriving an enormous amount of power. And it takes Herculean effort to get these Neanderthals in to, to introduce another idea, to, inter to get them up high enough to look and see a bigger world. When we enter Canto 32, Dante has another little uh, comment about language. And now it's, it's his own admission that language, um, he, doesn't, he doesn't feel comfortable with his power to express in language what he has to talk about. Had I the crude and scrannel lines to suit the melancholy whole upon which all the other circling crags converge and rest, the juice of my conception would be pressed more fully, but because I feel their lack, I bring myself to speak, yet speak in fear. And he calls upon the muses. It's as though he's beginning the poem again. And so the giant, Antaeus, takes Virgil and Dante and lowers them down into the final pit of hell. And there they are. Now, the last river in hell that they crossed was Slegathon, the river of hot blood. And now they are standing on Cocytus, the frozen lake of hell. This is the place of psychic numbing. The sins at this region, this is the place where Satan himself lives. The sins at this region are so enormous that they all require psychic numbing. The kind of psychic numbing that could produce Nazi ovens. The kind of psychic numbing that could bomb Hiroshima or Nagasaki. The kind of psychic numbing that could make weapons that will destroy the planet the kind of psychic numbing that could go to work every day and make bacteriological and here I am using the word weapon. That's not the word anymore. But could make bacteriological or biological or chemical monstrosity. The kind of psychic numbing that's required to talk about abortion as though it's an inalienable civil right. The kind of psychic numbing that's rampant and so Dante says, Beneath my feet a lake that frozen fast had lost the look of water and seemed glass. Now, to talk about chilling, that is a chilling comment. This is the water of life. This is what the thirst is finally for. It's for that baptismal water, and look what has become of it. It had lost the look of water and seemed glass. It was frozen and was a mirror. And this is hell. When the, when the baptismal water the rejuvenating water, the water of life, the flowing water of life is frozen into a mirror. 
And these are the, this is the place in hell where the, the betrayers are all punished. And Dante sees the first sinners, and he says, My eyes turned toward my feet and saw two locked so close the hair upon their heads had intermingled. Now these are two brothers who killed each other. But notice, their heads are so close their hair is matted together. One of the hallmarks of hell is physical proximity and spiritual alienation. Physical proximity and spiritual alienation. Dante saw that as a symptom of hell. There have been modern people who have seen that as a symptom of hell too. But the, the standard modern conclusion is the opposite of Dante's. The standard modern conclusion is people have said it's, it's Sartre's no exit and uh, hell is other people, that idea. Physical proximity and spiritual alienation. The modern solution is to eliminate physical proximity. And Dante's solution would be to eliminate spiritual alienation. So we, our, our age and Dante, share that insight, but our approach to it is exactly the opposite. We distance ourselves. Distance ourselves, that's right. And Dante looks and sees this about them, which is the central thing to notice about them, of course. Their eyes, which wept upon the ground before, shed tears down on their lips until the cold held fast the tears and locked their lids still more. What you get here is a picture of tears coming out of the eyes and getting just down to the lips and then freezing, and the eyes freeze, and the lips freeze. It's the utter loss of language, communication, and tears can the tears only remain fluid long enough to get down there and freeze up the mouth, and then they all freeze again. And they, they butt each other's heads like rams. Dante speaks to one of the sinners and he says, I am alive and can be precious to you if you want fame. And the sinner says, I want the contrary. I want to, be, to fall into oblivion, thank you. I do not want fame. Now this has, been, this has been a theme that has been building as Dante has gone deeper into hell. Uh, at first people want to be remembered, but then less and less so, and these creatures do not want to be remembered, thank you. It's interesting, it's not much... Dante gets spiteful with this character. Uh, but the point, I think, of this little encounter is that Dante has picked up on something about this level of hell. Is that sinners down here do not want to be remembered. And it's something that stands him in good stead when he has his next encounter, which is with Ugolino and Ruggieri. 
Now, what I'd like to do is um, uh, go through, well, I want to go through this story of Ugolino and Ruggieri uh, twice. So Dante's walking along, and it's all ice, and then he says, I saw two shades frozen in one hole, and that's the standard procedure, so that one's head served as the other's cap, and just as he who's hungry chews his bread, one sinner dug his teeth into the other right at the place where the brain is joined to the nape. The point is that one of these sinners is eternally eating the back of the head of the other one. Dante addresses the sinner. O oh, you who show with such a bestial sign your hatred for the one on whom you feed, tell me the cause, I said, we can agree that if your quarrel with him is justified, then knowing who you are and what, what's his sin, I shall repay you yet on earth above, if that with which I speak does not dry up. Notice this little ploy of Dante. He has learned from this under, other sinner that nobody down here wants to be remembered. So he knows he's not going to get this guy to tell his story with that. So he says to him, if your quarrel with him is justified, then knowing who you are and what's his sin, I shall repay you on earth. In other words, you tell me what a wretched creep he is and I'll go make him infamous. I'll go tell the story on earth. And then to this, Ugolino, who's the sinner he's talking to, really, he picks up on that. Ugolino, Canto 33, starts, well, four or five lines into it, Ugolino says, You want me to renew despairing pain that presses at my heart even as I think back before I speak? But if my words are seed from which the fruit is infamy for this betrayer whom I gnaw, you'll see me speak and weep at once. Oh, if I can say something that'll, you know, add to his... Uh, torture or the contempt people hold him in and so on, I'll do it. So it's a nice ploy by Dante to get him to talk. There's another thing. that These are very subtle little things, but it's, it's something that Dante does, so it should be pointed out, and we could explore it at length probably. The language that Dante, that uh, Ugolino uses here to, as he, to, to preface his story is very similar to the language that Francesca uses to preface her story. Francesca says, I shall tell my tale as one who weeps and speaks. And Ugolino says, you'll see me speak and weep at once. And it's even more parallel in the Italian. Now, scholars have noted that Dante does this. Dante's poem is highly uh, architectural. Uh, tremendous parallelisms all the way through his poem. And Dante often will allude to these by phraseology that is the same or very similar. It's a striking uh, fact that the first twin sinners that Dante met in the Inferno, Francesca and Paolo, and the last of these great twin sinners, Ugolino and Ruggieri, separated by the whole of hell in a way, 
on first glance, the first two uh, were involved in the sin of too much love, on first glance, I think. The second, quite clearly, were involved in the sin of too much hate. But Dante has thrown little language in here to say they have, they have a parallel place in hell. We're still, in, in that way, there is a tremendous uniformity in hell. Dante, uh, excuse me, uh, Ugolino then begins to tell his story. I was Count Ugolino, and this is one, this one here, Archbishop Ruggieri, and now I'll tell you why I am his neighbor. Little play on love your neighbor there. And so you, I'm going to paraphrase uh, about half of this and read half of it. Uh, Ugolino begins to... Uh, describe what happened. He had trusted uh, Ruggieri. Ruggieri betrayed him, threw him into a tower, um, and while in the tower, he had a dream. He said, I dreamed that bad dream which rent the curtain of the future for me. This man appeared to me as lord and master, and he hunted down the wolf and, and its young whelps. And uh, the dream ends with... Uh, the, the, the hounds finally catching hold of the, of the wolves and devouring them. And he said, When I awoke at daybreak, I could hear my sons who were together with me there. So his sons were locked in the tower as well, his young sons. Now, this is a heartbreaking story. Weeping within their sleep, asking for bread, his young sons. You would be cruel indeed if thinking what my heart foresaw you don't already grieve. And if you don't weep now, when would you weep? They were awake by now. The hour grew near at which our food is usually brought, and each, because of what he dreamed, was anxious. Below I heard them nailing up the door of that appalling tower. Without a word, I looked into the faces of my son. I did not weep. Within, I turned to stone. They wept. Matthew Arnold, commentary on this canto. He said, if you want to know what great poetry is all about, those words right there will depict it. I did not weep, but turned to stone within, they wept. Matthew Arnold says, that has a supreme economy of words. Very few words convey an enormous amount about the situation. I did not weep. Within I turned to stone. They wept. And my poor little Anselm said, Father, you look so... dot, dot, dot. What is wrong with you? At that I shed no tears. And all day long and through the night that followed did not answer until another sun had touched the world. As soon as a thin ray had made its way into that sorry prison and I saw reflected in four faces my own gaze, out of, out of my grief I bit at both my hands and they who thought I'd done it out of hunger immediately rose and told me, Father, it would be far less painful for us if you ate us for you clothed us in this sad flesh, 
It is for you to strip it off. Then I grew calm to keep them from more sadness. Through that day and the next, we all were silent. Oh, hard earth, why did you not open up? But after we had reached the fourth day, Gatto, throwing this another son of his, throwing himself outstretched down at my feet, implored me, Father, why do you not help me? And there he died. And just as you see me, I saw the other three fall one by one between the fifth day and the sixth, at which, now blind, I started groping over each. And after they were dead, I called for them two days. Then fasting had more force than grief. And then... And then... Uh, question is, what do you mean by that? Fasting had more force than grief. And there are some who think that he meant that fasting, uh, starvation, he died of starvation instead of grief. And there are others who make a, I think, a much stronger case for the fact that he, what he meant is that he ate their flesh. And that's the end of his story. And Dante says, when he had spoken this, his eyes awry, again he gripped the sad skull in his teeth, which like a dog's were strong down to the bone. There is in the original a sense of crunching the bone of Ruggieri's skull. But the, but the, 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 the really chilling part of this is this thing about with eyes awry. I think the best way probably to imagine that is imagine... Ugolino looking at Dante and then when he gets to this point fasting had more force than grief it's as though the focal point of his vision comes drops away from Dante and then he's just sort of staring in the middle space there in other words he's totally consumed by something himself and turns around and starts gnawing on the, the brain of Ruggieri The point of all this is that what happened to Ugolino was turned in Ugolino's consciousness into hate. And Dante launches into a diatribe against Pisa where this, this uh, horrible thing happened. And he says, towards the end of it, he says, if Count Ugolino was reputed to have betrayed your fortresses, there was no need to have his sons endure such torment. And then an interesting thing happens. Dante, I think, drops a hint for us. And the hint is in the word that's translated here, torment, in Italian, tal croce, which means the cross. And I think the purpose of the hint is to get us to read the story again. The great genius of Dante, 
as we have found out in his story of Francesca, his story of uh, the death of Ulysses, the great genius of Dante is to tell a story which on first reading will uh, invoke from us great sympathy. And on later readings, will replace that sympathy with a sense of horror. Now, that's a very hard thing to do. But it seems to me that's part of Dante's genius. But notice what Dante says in line 87 is that it is, Don, it is Ugolino's sons who have been crucified. And so, as Dante was telling the story, as, as Dante was writing the Ugolino story, he's writing it so we'll have tremendous sympathy or be heartbroken or touched or awed by the fate of Ugolino. But while he's doing it, he is inlaying into the language little hints to tell us on second, third, fourth, and fifth readings the deeper problem that we didn't get on the first reading. So I think we had to come back. Dante left us a hint. He said, Tal Croce, the cross, and it was the sons he was talking about, the young sons of Ugolino. So we had to come back and start over again with this story. The first thing to notice is that there is nothing in this story about Ugolino's sin. Now, why is that? The way it is in the Inferno, Dante has, uh, show, has demonstrated to us what it is that has caused the damnation of these souls. Now, I would suggest that the reason we don't hear about Ugolino's sin is because the final... Uh, seal on Ugolino's damnation happened while he was in the tower without him even knowing it. That he may have, he may have uh, been a traitor and that's what led to the tower, but it was another kind of deeper treason that happened in the tower itself that is the reason he is damned. Now, one of the tragedies of being in a tower and dying in a tower in Dante's age would be that you would not have a confessor to hear your sins and could not therefore be absolved of them before you had to meet your maker. But I think Ugolino has another opportunity. I think he has extended to him uh, another and more direct form of redemption and he doesn't even see it. If we go back, at uh, when Dante first sees them, one of the things he says is, I saw two shades frozen in one hole so that one's head served as the other's cap, so that one head wore the hat of the other, or wore the other for a hat. Or, or John Chardy says, uh, 
one head made a helmet for the other. This is an important reference. In a commentary, in a dream interpretation in some of Carl Jung's writings, Jung says the hat, as a covering for the head, has the general sense of something that epitomizes the head. The hat, as a sort of leading idea, covers the whole personality and imparts its own significance to it. And in Dante, when the, the pilgrim Dante gets to the purgatorio, excuse me, gets to the end of the purgatorio and Virgil has to depart, Virgil says, Dante has completed his, his, uh, his t tutorial, and Virgil says to him, I crown and mitre you. And again, it's this twin tradition that Dante is attentive to. The, the, uh, the crown being the secular order, the mitre being the religious order, and that he now has achieved uh, maturity in both of those. He has internalized them both. But notice the use of the, of the image of the hat as depicting those. It, the hat represents um, one's vocation or one's function. These two men have become a hat for each other. In other words, their whole life has been organized uh, around their hatred and antagonism. Alan Tate, American poet Alan Tate, wrote a poem called Winter Mask in which he alludes to this place in Dante's Inferno. And part of the poem goes this way. The poisoned rat in the wall cuts through the wall like a knife then blind, dying, and small, and driven to cold water, dies of the water of life. The image, by the way, you know, of poisoned rat dehydrates. He gets exactly gets the implication of Dante's last cantos, the Inferno. But he goes on. Both damned in eternal ice the traitor become the boar who had led his friend to slaughter now bites his head. Not nice. The food that he lives for. Think about the food that he lives for. His whole being is now devoted to the destruction of the other. Dante says to Ugolino, oh, you who show with such a bestial sign your hatred for the other, tell me about it, he says. The term bestial sign is interesting. The Italian segno, meaning sign, meaning symbol, I think has an echo in the Gospel of John, the notion in the Gospel of John of signs. Jesus performs signs. Now, a sign is something that has a deeper meaning. It has its surface meaning, but it has a deeper meaning, and I think this informed Dante's whole sense of the fourfold meaning of his poem. But when he actually puts into the poem itself the word segno, it is, like the, word, the words tal croce, it is a hint to his readers that there is a deeper story going on. 
that the surface story is, is only the signal or the sign for a deeper story. Ugolino failed to interpret the sign. And most, I think, of Dante's interpreters have failed to interpret the sign, though Dante left them hints, or more to the point, breadcrumbs. I say breadcrumbs because he says of Ugolino, when he says he's eating the back of the head of Ruggieri, he says, just as one who's hungry chews his bread. So the theme of being thirsty was preceded this, and the water of life in the frozen lake, that has become a mirror, and now we introduce the theme of being hungry, and hungry for bread, and the word pan, which is the word for bread, and the word companion, which means to eat bread with one. And the, what is being perverted here is companionship, human companionship, as though, as though there are only two alternatives, finally, that we become a, that we have communion with one another and therefore become a community, or that we will consume one another and eventually consume one another to the point of being cannibals. So it is a hunger for bread that has been perverted to the point of cannibalism. Ugolino has a dream. He said, I dreamed that bad dream which rent the curtain of the future for me. Now, we know about the rending of curtains a little bit. Certainly, Dante knows about it. It's what happened at the crucifixion. The veil of the temple was rent in two. Apocalypse means to unveil, to rip the veil, to reveal what is. There's that passage in uh, uh, Northrop Fry where he says, where he says, uh, history is the device that we use. This is a paraphrase. I don't have it in front of me. History is the device we use for veiling the apocalypse from ourselves. And so Ugolino has a dream which he says, rent the curtain of the future for me, and he misses it. The dream, by the way, is not about his death. That's his, that's his mistake. He thinks it's a dream about his death. It's a dream about his damnation. But he thinks it rends, it, it rends the curtain of the future. But the apocalypse never rends the curtain of the future. When the, veil, when the, when the apocalyptic uh, uh, tearing of the veil happens, what is revealed to us is the, is the present, is what is, not what's going to be. And so there was a revelation, and he didn't get it. He said, when I awoke at daybreak, I could hear my sons who were together with me there weeping within their sleep asking for bread. They were awake by now 
the hour drew near at which our food was usually brought, and each, because of what he'd dreamed, they had dreams as well, was anxious. Below, I heard them nailing up the door of that appalling tower. Again, a crucifixion image. Nailing. He heard the sounds of the hammer and nails. Without a word, I looked into the faces of my sons. This is the crisis point for him. This is the crisis point. And the crisis is, at this point, will you continue to have your hatred for Ruggieri become the dominant impulse of your life? Or will you come into the presence of your son? I heard them nailing up the door of that appalling tower. Without a word, I looked into the faces of my sons. I did not weep. Within, I turned to stone. They wept. Remember, they woke up weeping and asking for bread. In the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, Who among you, when his son asks for bread, gives him a stone? I did not weep. Within I turned to stone. They wept, and my poor little Anselm said, Father, you look so... Notice line 51 there. You look so... Dot, dot, dot. There is a sense of a broken sentence. Suddenly, something has changed in Ugolino. What has changed is that he just lost his soul. Father, you look so... What is wrong with you? And then, line 53, line 52... One would expect, Anselm says, what is wrong with you? One would expect, if you cover the line and read it one by one, one word at a time, at that I wept. No, wrong. At that I shed no tears. And all day long and through the night that followed did not answer. Stone. You know, St. Paul interprets the stone or the heart of stone as the inability to understand the mystery of sacrifice, the mystery of the cross. But grace abounds. God doesn't give up until it's completely lost. So notice this. And all that, I shed no tears, and all that day and through the night that followed did not answer until another son had touched the world. 
just as soon as a thin ray had made its way into that sorry prison. This is called the last chance. There's a little crack and a little thin ray of sunlight comes in and there's an opportunity still. And I saw reflected in four faces my own gaze. His sons had become mirrors. The water of life is frozen and becomes a mirror. This is the collapse of communion. Out of my grief I bit at both my hands and they who thought I'd done that out of hunger immediately rose and told me, Father, it would be far less painful for us if you ate of us. Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am that living bread which has come down from heaven if anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. Moreover, the bread which I give is my own flesh. I give it for the life of the world. This led to a fierce dispute among the Jews. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And these sons said, Father, eat our flesh. Then God his other son threw himself before him, outstretched down at my feet, implored me, Father, why have you forsaken me? Huh? Father, why have you... That's what that line means at the bottom of page 303. Father, why have you forsaken me and died? Ugolino is at the foot of the cross. And all he can think of is how much he hates Ruggieri. And they died, one by one. And then he says, now blind. And of course he's blind. He was blind before, but he didn't realize it. They were all mirrors, and they just shattered and fell, and now he's blind. The whole world had become a mirror, and now the mirror's broken, that's all. There's nobody else there to mirror him, so he's blind. And now he realizes it, and he starts to call out for them. And fasting had more force than grief. And like the story in the Gospel of John, where both the disciples of Jesus and what, and what the John and I author calls the, quote, Jews, unable to perceive the depth of that image he's using of the flesh, unable to understand the depth of that. They understood it literally, and they said, this is absurd. The inability to understand the depth of the image led them to appreciate it only at a literal level. Ugolino, unable to understand what was being extended in him by his very son, takes the Eucharistic image literally and becomes a cannibal. If the water of life is frozen, then 
Only the blood of the Lamb can do it. We hunger for communion. In the primordial world or in the womb, we experience union. And the umbilical cord is cut and we begin to hunger for communion. Not union, communion. And companionship. And those are Eucharistic hungers. They are fundamentally Eucharistic hungers. If, 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 if we understand the depth of that symbolism. And Eliot talks about history. T.S. Eliot talks about history and he says, she gives when our attention is distracted and what she gives gives with such supple confusions that the giving famishes the craving. Promises to satisfy that hunger but doesn't. Titillates it but does not satisfy it. And so Dante said, Ugolino said, this tower that I'm in used to be called the Eagle's Tower. But now it's called the Hunger Tower. And I think that's human history. The Eagle, of course, is the representative of, the, of, of human striving. It's the Roman image. It's the American image. It's the, it's the, it's, it's the empire. It's history. It's, it's the history without the cross. And this tower that Ugolino's in, he's just in history without the cross. And the history is the contention between himself and whoever. In this case, it's Ruggieri. It's human history at its most revealed level. And it used to be, before Dante set the record straight, called the Eagle's Tower. And Dante wants to let us know that it is, in fact, the Hunger Tower. And it is that fundamental hunger that we try to solve in a tower that has no cross atop it that will turn us into cannibals. I know this is almost a, a, a short course in, in salvation history. I, I know I sound like a, a tent revivalist sometimes when I talk this way, but uh, the historical dialectic without the cross becomes the hunger tower. And it becomes, the hunger becomes so voracious, finally, that we are not only consuming ourselves and consuming each other, but we're consuming the next generation. Uh, let me uh, go back a little bit just to pick up on a general theme, and then we'll follow it through uh, a few things that happened here. Last week we went uh, roughly halfway through Canto 33, and we're going to pick up there this week and see a few more little details on a theme that Dante is exploring at the bottom of hell. The bottom of hell is a frozen lake. Uh, Cositis is the name of it. And uh, it is frozen, and I think the way to look at it is it is the water of life frozen and therefore inaccessible. Uh, there were images earlier on uh, indicating that, the, that uh, the nature of the thirst of some of these uh, damned souls was a longing for baptismal waters, but here they are uh, submerged in the very stuff, but it happens to be frozen, and so it cannot have its baptismal effect, and so it has 
the uh, opposite effect, namely it is it tortures them with the sameness of their existence, unregenerate sameness of their existence. We've many times gone back to that that uh, note over the gate of hell which says, Perme, 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 through me, through me, through me, duro. Uh, the, the sense being that hell is the is the uh, is the attempt on the part of the ego to remain uh, unchanged, finally eternalizing itself, and that that is hell. So anyway, the, uh, these creatures are in ice, and these are the traitors. And Dante moves on. He had a long um, uh, interview of sorts with uh, uh, Ugolino, who was eating the back brain of Archbishop Ruggieri. And then he moves on and notices some more sinners and notices some more details. I'm starting in line 94. They're weeping, excuse me, they're very weeping there, won't let them weep. And grief that finds a barrier in their eyes turns inward to increase their agony. Because their first tears freeze into a cluster and like a crystal visor, fill up all the hollow that is underneath the eyebrow. They're very weeping there, won't let them weep. And it freezes up. Earlier in this same bottom pit of hell, on the outer circles of this pit, uh, are sinners of less grievous sin, although anybody at the bottom of hell is, we're talking, grievous sin. Uh, on the outer circles, the... Uh, a slight distinction between the souls there and the souls closer in is that the tears remain fluid for a little longer on the outside of the circle. And as you get inward, they freeze altogether, except for Satan himself, and he is obliged to weep for symbolic reasons. Uh, but that's another thing we'll come to. But the point is that uh, there are two images of damnation here, compound images, and both have to do with ice, one is that the water of life has frozen and they have no access to the sacramental uh, transformative agent. And secondly, the tears have frozen and the only other access to redemption, of course, is repentance. And if one has, uh, if one has uh, wedged oneself into the psychological corner where you can't even feel repentance, then the damnation is complete. So the horror of this picture is of the water of life externally and the water of life internally or the, or the possibility of tears of repentance, both freezing and both resulting in what we in our day would call psychic numbing so that the damnation uh, is complete. This, I, the, uh, again, the echo here, or the uh, symbolic, uh, uh, continuing symbolic reference, the crystal visor or the crystal mask, uh, these tears, the tears freeze and form a, a, a frozen mask, which, uh, if you think about it, is, a, is an unbelievable insight into human perdition. Uh, one could ask oneself, have I 
Have I ever seen someone whose frozen tears had formed a crystal mask? Uh, do I know something about that experience myself? That's at the bottom of hell, when the frozen tears form a crystal mask. Well, the one new element in this uh, little scene is that Dante, uh, even though his face is so cold that it seems calloused, uh, feels a breeze, feels a wind blow, and he's, he, uh, he understands his meteorology enough to know that the wind only blows when the sun has access to, ch to you know, altering the temperature of things. And uh, since the sun can't reach down there, he wonders about this. And Virgil says, well, you just hold on. You'll see in a while. Uh, but there's a new element that's introduced here, which we pick up in Canto 34. But he has two more uh, uh, sinners to uh, have a brief uh, encounter with. And these are, uh, both of these are sinners who murdered not only their kinsmen, these are all traitors, as I said, in the bottom of hell. And these... Uh, the outside traitors are the traitors to family and the traitors to homeland or country. Uh, but these are uh, uh, lesser sins because both family and homeland are, those are not uh, completely voluntary uh, commitments. They come with the accidents of birth. But when we get in further, we get to voluntary commitments. And to breach a voluntary commitment, as, as Dante has set it out here, is a more grievous uh, transgression. So these are both of these characters, uh, Fra Alberigo and, and Brancadoria, have killed family members, but they killed them uh, a, as invited guests. So it is as, uh, a, as invited guests that they're the murderers of invited guests that they're being, uh, that they're being punished. And Dante learns a very uh, sobering and terrifying fact here, which he had not known before. When he speaks with uh, Fra Alberigo, he, uh, he says to him, Are you already dead? And Alberigo says, Well, you see, this part of hell has a special privilege. He calls it privilege. Which is that uh, souls who are treasonous at this level of heinousness, the soul falls into hell while the body's still alive. So that uh, the, the final damnation has already happened, even though the body may live on for years and years. Now, the biblical uh, reference for this understanding is in the Gospel of John at the Eucharist, the Last Supper scene, the Gospel of John. Peter says to the beloved disciple, lean over there and ask him who he means. Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And then Jesus said, well, that's the one who dips his, his bread in the dish with me. Uh, and then uh, he offers it, and Judas dips it in. And the text says, uh, and he ate the bread, and the devil entered him. It's a, in some ways, it's a parody on the Eucharist. And the devil entered him, and he went out, and it was night. Uh, and so the notion was, uh, uh, medieval mind was uh, exercising itself constantly on a uh, on a, uh, uh, analogical and theological interpretation of the various legends and scriptures and so on. And the idea was that the soul actually go, drops into hell and is damned at that moment for some traitors. And of course, Judas is the 
is the central trader.